Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Happy Holidays, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes. Our YouTube channel, Timeline, is home to many world history documentaries, but we know that not everyone has the time to watch them all, so we're turning them into podcasts as well. Today, appropriately, we're bringing you a documentary that reconstructs the lost biography of Jesus, retold using the texts of those who would have known him better than anyone else, his closest followers and family. The voice of the documentary is Piers Gibbon, and it features a variety of historians and experts, including Mark Goodacre, a scholar of the New Testament, and Robert Eisenman, professor of Middle East religions at California State University. Around 25 years after the death of Jesus Christ, the movement he had inspired split into two factions. These factions held very different views of their leader, his identity, his message, his vision. A power struggle ensued, and one of these factions under the guiding genius of St. Paul emerged the winner. Eventually, it wrote its version of Jesus' story in the Gospels of the New Testament. The other faction is more mysterious. It left behind no surviving record of its beliefs and withered away. Yet unlike the winners who wrote the Gospels, this faction was composed of the people who really knew Jesus his family, and his disciples. What if they had won the power struggle and written their alternative biography of Jesus? What sort of person would Jesus be if his life story had been told by those who knew him best? Jerusalem, a city divided by religion. Somewhere in this city nearly 2,000 years ago, the leading members of a revolutionary Jewish-led movement gathered for a crucial summit meeting. The meeting would be the final showdown in a long-running rift between the movement's two key figures. One of these men was called Paul. He'd been born in Turkey of wealthy Jewish parents and trained as a rabbi in Jerusalem. It would later emerge that he was also a citizen of the Roman Empire, which at this time occupied Palestine. Paul can be seen as a very sophisticated, cosmopolitan uh, person familiar with the, the overseas world of Imperial Rome, well-traveled, well-educated, master of Greek rhetoric, someone who is sophisticated. The second key figure going to the summit remains one of the most mysterious people in the whole story of Christianity. His name was James, and he had become the most important person in the Jesus movement. 
James, everyone accepts, was the brother of Jesus. In the Gospels and the Book of Acts, James does not appear anywhere during the lifetime of Jesus, and yet suddenly he blossoms out as the leader of the Jesus movement after Jesus' death. What sort of person was James? The Gospels mention that Jesus had four brothers, of whom James was probably the eldest, but they say little else. However, from other documents, it seems clear that James could hardly have been a greater contrast to the worldly sophisticate Paul. Jesus' family were poor and probably illiterate. They were also strict Jews, keenly observant of Jewish law, and no one seems to have been stricter than Jesus' brother, James. James comes through as wearing threadbare clothes, as being poor and law-oriented, the epitome of the extreme purity-conscious, zealot-type Jewish groups. Later documents uh, speak very highly of James. Uh, in fact, he was so pious, he used to pray every day on his knees, uh, it said, till his knees became like camel's knees. After Jesus' death, James had become head of the Jesus movement in Jerusalem the Jerusalem Church, as it became known. But away from Jerusalem, Paul had his visionary encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Up until then, Paul had been a persecutor of Christ's followers. But now, he became one of their leaders, and a man with a view of Jesus which directly conflicted with James. Their differences were fundamental. They included Jesus' birth, his message, and above all, whether or not he was divine. Today, the followers of Christ take for granted the Gospels' view that Jesus was the Son of God who died on the cross to save mankind. This is the version reenacted every Good Friday by Christians in Jerusalem. But in the years just after Jesus' death, the question of exactly who he was was highly contentious. The ensuing battle between Paul and James to resolve that question would decide what version of Jesus was handed down to posterity. The losers would be viewed as heretics and written out of the history altogether. The dispute began because Paul believed that he, and not Jesus' family or disciples, had been given the truth about Jesus, even though Paul had never known Jesus himself. He claimed he knew more about Jesus than they did because he was communing not with the lifetime Jesus, who perhaps was a bit difficult to understand, but with the heavenly Jesus who came to him and gave him instructions and information from heaven, and the heavenly Jesus was a better source of information, according to Paul, than the actual historical earthly Jesus. The evidence of how the battle between Paul and James unfolded can be gleaned from hints and references in Paul's own letters and the Acts of the Apostles. The rift began because of Paul's determination that having once oppressed Christians, he would now spread his version of Christ's message to all men, including non-Jews, throughout the world. He began missions in four uh, provinces of the Roman Empire and made a great success of them with um, groups of churches in each place. And uh, as soon as he began to be a success, uh, the Jerusalem uh, people were behind him trying to force his churchmen back into their way of thinking. James came to believe that Paul was diluting Jesus' message by allowing non-Jews to join the movement without insisting that they observe Jewish law. One issue was eating kosher food. To James, this was essential. He believed that the Jesus movement and Jesus himself were strictly Jewish and new members had to respect the rules. 
Another divisive issue was whether, like Jesus himself, non-Jewish recruits had to be circumcised. Now, the trouble is, of course, when you actually say to people, uh, would you like to become a Christian, they may think, what a marvellous thing. But if you say, well, the next thing is, uh, you know, we've got a knife here, um, they're not perhaps so keen on it. As Paul himself wrote, the disputes between him and James had first come to a head around 50 AD when James sent emissaries led by the Apostle Peter to confront him in the Syrian city of Antioch. James's message to Paul was that non-Jewish members must eat kosher food if they were with Jews. Paul was furious. Paul describes them as, as having been brought in secretly to spy out our freedom which we have in Christ Jesus. False brethren, he calls them. He's very aggressive about it. The gunfire from this debate is almost deafening. In fact, 2 Corinthians, Paul launches into a diatribe of self-pity where he describes uh, all the wounds, all the suffering he has undergone and uh, finally begins to talk about his arch enemies whom he calls the pillars of the church, the super apostles, the apostles of the, of the highest degree. Eventually, to stop the movement splitting, Paul persuaded James to agree a compromise. The Jesus movement would remain a fundamentally Jewish one, but Paul's non-Jewish recruits could join without having to be circumcised or eat kosher food. The years passed with two separate missions. Paul continued to export his message to non-Jews throughout the Roman Empire, and he promised not to interfere with James and the Jerusalem church's mission to Jews. But then, James began to hear an alarming new story about Paul. So it was that around 58 AD, James summoned Paul to Jerusalem. Their summit meeting would be the end game in the rift which had beleaguered the Jesus movement ever since Paul had joined it. It would decide the future of Christianity and what version of Jesus' life would prevail. Paul was carrying a donation from his missions, but would it be enough to appease James? This is the first time Paul has been back in a long time. In Romans, he's very worried about it. He writes, pray that my offering be acceptable to the poor in Jerusalem. So he knows they might say, Paul, we won't take it from you. We would be happy to have it, but not from you. And he knows he's in danger. From New Testament references, it's possible to reconstruct what happened next. Paul arrived. He offered his donation as an act of fellowship but James seems to have refused it. Then he confronted Paul with the new charge being made against him, that he was encouraging Jews to break the Torah, the Jewish law. It wasn't simply that he was telling non-Jews they needn't keep the whole Torah. That was OK, because James was quite happy about that. That was the agreement made before, but he was going much further than that. He was telling Jews who were converted to the Jesus movement, that's the end of the Torah as you're concerned. You no need to circumcise your children anymore. There's no need to keep the dietary laws. All that is out of date. Paul could hardly deny the charges, but he tried to reassure James of his loyalty. Then James asked Paul to prove that he was still an observer of Jewish law by going to the temple and taking part in purification ceremonies. Paul, nothing loath, agrees to do this, even though we know from his letters and from everything Acts has shown us that he doesn't follow the, the law. So Paul is embodying the philosophy he presents in 1 Corinthians, the key letter for all of these things, where he says, I am a Greek to the Greek, a Jew to the Jew, a lawkeeper to the lawkeeper, a lawbreaker to the lawbreaker, I will do whatever I have to do to win. 
while he was in the process of carrying out these purifications in the temple, he was recognized by certain Jews who said, this is the man who has been going around telling Jews to give up the Torah. And there was a great riot. And it was at this point that Paul made his decisive move when he claimed protection on the grounds that he was a Roman citizen. How Paul had become a Roman citizen is a mystery. In the Acts of the Apostles, he says he was born one, but it was also possible to buy citizenship. His announcement shocked many of the onlooking Jews, for whom the occupying Romans were the oppressors. He's mobbed, and he's only rescued and, and extracted by Roman soldiers. They're not arresting him because they feel he's bad. They're arresting him in order to protect him from the zealot Jewish mob, among whom James seems to have been the darling. That is the split. The moment when he says, I am a Roman citizen, which was not known before, that is the moment of split when he, when he detaches himself completely from the Jerusalem church and its political aims, and he becomes the founder of a new movement. Over the coming century, Paul and his followers would be the winners in the battle for the biography of Jesus. They would write the New Testament story. The familiar image we have of Jesus today, from Renaissance paintings to Hollywood movies, reflects Paul's perspective. There is no pictorial representation or written record of how Jesus' family and closest followers might have seen him. But if the winners had been James and the Jerusalem church, how would they have written the life of Jesus? For most of us, our picture of Jesus is drawn from the four Gospels of the New Testament. But the message the Gospel writers were conveying was above all Paul's message. The term Gospel means good news. That means that if we can get out of our head a negative definition of the term propaganda, that the term propaganda is one of the best words to use to describe what they were doing. They were spreading good news about Jesus with a heavy slant, a very heavy theological slant. That slant was not just theological, it was also political. In 66 AD, less than a decade after Paul split with James, the Jews of Palestine rebelled against Rome. After a war lasting four years, they were crushed. Here at the hilltop fortress of Masada overlooking the Dead Sea, 900 Jews committed suicide rather than surrender to the Romans. It was at this very time, just as the Jews were being defeated, that the New Testament Gospels began to be written. The result was very, very significant because it meant that the Gospels, were, which were written by the Pauline Church, were written in such a way as to discount any loyalty to Jewish patriotism on the part of the readers of those Gospels, the readers for whom the Gospels were written, and to say that we Christians are not rebellious Jews. The war with the Romans also devastated Jerusalem. The Jerusalem church wing of the Jesus movement was effectively wiped out as a power base. No Gospel from its members survives and yet they were the people who were the closest to Jesus. James had known Jesus uh, as, as a boy. They'd grown up together. He knew him intimately before he'd become uh, the savior of the world. So between them, these people have access to the real historical Jesus. We don't have any access to what they thought, except as we have it through the Pauline uh, community who've adapted it. But because the Gospel writers had to base their adaptations on the earliest accounts, they contain many hints of the original Jesus as known by the Jerusalem church. 
Using these clues, it's possible to piece together how the Jerusalem church would have written its alternative biography of Jesus. The story begins with his birth. For Paul's followers, it was a central part of faith that Jesus was the Son of God, not man. This required Jesus to be born of a virgin. So gospel writers like Matthew had to carve out a story which would fit the idea of the virgin birth, an idea which became a central part of Christian belief. Matthew felt that you were up against a problem insofar as God was the father of Jesus, Jesus is the son of God, so how exactly can we reconcile that with the real human Jesus we have? And Matthew felt he'd found the answer when he turned up the prophecy in Isaiah, behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a child. Whereas the Jerusalem church, of course, has got uh, James uh, telling them what life was like in his own family. And they believed that Jesus' father was Joseph and his mother was Mary. And Jesus was born entirely naturally. He was conceived like anybody else. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem. On this site, according to the Gospels, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mother. Luke's Gospel says that Mary and Joseph had traveled here from their home in Nazareth to take part in a Roman census. This is historically implausible. There was no such census around the time Jesus was born. But for the gospel writers, it was important that Jesus be seen from birth as the savior prophesied by the Old Testament. Bethlehem is where David, the, the, the once and future king, came from. That's where the ideal monarch came from. That's where the new ideal monarch should come from. Jesus, in other words, should be born in Bethlehem, no matter where he was born. So Bethlehem is symbolic. Where was Jesus born? Almost certainly at Nazareth. In Matthew's birth story, there are further exotic ingredients. The star which hovers over Bethlehem and the three wise men. But strip away the storyteller's ingredients and we get closer to the more mundane version which the alternative biography would have recorded. No star, no wise men and an ordinary birth in his home village of Nazareth. Nazareth, where Jesus was brought up, is in the state of Galilee in Palestine. Unlike so many other parts of the Jesus story, there are sources beyond the Gospels, for example, Roman historians like Josephus, to help build up a picture of what Palestine was really like in Jesus's time. One of the problems with the Gospels as they've come down to us is that uh, we get a picture of bucolic Palestine, itinerant preachers wandering around, uh, curings, raisings, uh, walking on waters, exorcisms. I mean, this is total disinformation, dissimulation. The real picture of Palestine in this period is best found in historians like Josephus. Palestine was a seething revolutionary core. The Gospels are written about a period when the whole of the Jewish nation was groaning under a very severe and cruel Roman occupation that the Romans are hardly mentioned. It's just as if someone were to write a history of France in the time of the war between, uh, say, 1940 and 1945 and not even mention the Germans. 60 years before Jesus' birth, Roman legions had invaded Judea, the southern province of Palestine. Since then, there had been frequent Jewish uprisings. They were mercilessly crushed. Even before Jesus was born, thousands of Jews had been executed on Roman crosses. But Paul and his followers were intent on creating a non-Jewish religion, which would appeal throughout the Roman Empire and be tolerated by it. The Gospels contain no criticism of Rome. 
Indeed, the word Roman is hardly mentioned at all. The Gospels and the images which ever since have stemmed from them portray Jesus as an essentially peaceful, non-political man, a man who deliberately avoids saying anything that implies confrontation with Rome. However, the alternative biography would have presented evidence that Jesus' religion went hand-in-hand hand with politics. For a start, Jesus' birthplace, Galilee, which was governed by a Roman puppet ruler called Herod Antipas, was a hotbed of Jewish rebellion. Remote caves near the Sea of Galilee gave perfect hiding places for revolutionary Jewish movements to strike at the Roman occupiers in the neighbouring province of Judea. Jesus would also have seen great economic injustice. For some, Galilee was booming. The Romans had created big collective farms and put Jewish collaborators in charge. But while they got rich, the peasants suffered. What happens to a vast majority of people in this situation? Especially with a tradition that insists the land belongs to God. It must be handled justly and righteously because the land is mine, says the Lord in, in Leviticus. Imagine the Romans hearing that and saying, what? The land belongs to God. Land is a commodity to be bought and sold, to be bartered. Land is an entrepreneurial commodity, not a divine gift. Jewish tradition, in a way, and Roman entrepreneurial commercialization are in a co collision course. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes, where we've just learned about how the Jewish tradition and Roman entrepreneurship were on a collision course since the early days. 
Into this revolutionary atmosphere stepped a figure who would play a key role in the story of Jesus. He was John the Baptist. In the New Testament, the adult Jesus first appears as a disciple of John, who baptizes him and recognizes him as the Son of God. But one by one, each gospel tries to play down the baptism, as if they're desperate to avoid any idea that John may have been Jesus' mentor. They're all a little bit embarrassed about the story of the baptism. Mark tries to make it uh, very clear that Jesus is in no way subordinate to John, as the casual reader might have thought, by saying, having, G ha having Jesus pronounced God's beloved son with a voice booming from heaven. Matthew even has John protesting. You know, you don't, you know, it's not for me to baptize you. Luke, even more incredibly, places the baptism of Jesus after John has been arrested. And, in fact, if you read only Luke, you wouldn't know that John had baptised Jesus. But the alternative biography would have seen John as a major figure and the formative influence in Jesus' life. But what sort of influence? One clue lies in the fact that John was considered so dangerous that he would end up being executed by Herod Antipas, the Romans' puppet ruler in Galilee. John the Baptist represented a political threat to Herod. And why did he represent a political threat? The reason was because John the Baptist was a prophet who was prophesying the imminent arrival of the Messiah. And by Messiah, he meant not some otherworldly figure, but a human, kingly, royal figure who would come and fulfill the prophecies, particularly the prophecies of Zechariah, who had prophesied that the Messiah would come and would uh, defeat the invaders. Here, in the Shrine of the Book in Jerusalem, there are more clues to the kind of message John the Baptist was teaching Jesus. The shrine houses a set of 2,000-year-old documents called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They were discovered in 1947 in caves near the settlement of Qumran on the shores of the Dead Sea. It's believed they contain the writings of a religious sect called the Essenes who lived at Qumran. Scholars of the Dead Sea Scrolls believe it is possible that there is a link between John and the Essenes. John is described as a hermit. John is described as an ascetic, very similar to the life led in the wilderness by the most ascetic branch of the Qumran community. In addition, there are textual links. Both John and the Essenes use the same passage from Isaiah to prophesy the kingdom of God. And in the New Testament, Mark's Gospel talks of John preparing a way in the wilderness, a key phrase used in the scrolls. Though the link can't be proved, the Dead Sea Scrolls do provide an insight into the kind of apocalyptic message which was current at this time and being passed on by John to Jesus. The scrolls are militant. They're very, very political. They disapprove, for instance, of Roman occupation in Palestine. They're horrified by it. They clearly participate in the war against Rome. There's a document in the scrolls called the War Scroll, which envisions, shows the whole blueprint for a final apocalyptic war against all evil, including the Romans on Earth. Now, the scrolls have a weird idea that in order for them to win this final apocalyptic war against all evil, many scroll scholars have said, oh, this is just an idealized theoretical war. I don't think so. In any case, in order to win it, they need the help of the holy angels who are going to fight with them. That's their secret weapon, their atomic bomb, as it were. Whether or not John emerged specifically from the Essenes, it's clear his message carried an explosive charge. What John the Baptist is doing is planting little ticking 
time bombs of apocalyptic expectation all over the Jewish homeland. When is God going to do this? Now, we're waiting and we're counting, as it were. The countdown has begun. When is God going to ensure a just world? That's a very dangerous, of course, expectation. After the execution of John the Baptist, Jesus created his own movement from the foundations laid by John. But before putting any political plan into action, he first recruited his own disciples and followers. Among them was Mary Magdalene, the mysterious sinner who was saved by Jesus and stayed near to him for the rest of his life. Mary would later be the woman who went to his tomb to anoint his body. The Gospels required Jesus, the Son of God, to remain pure and celibate. But in the alternative biography, Mary may well have turned out to be Jesus' wife. In Jewish tradition, she could not have claimed the body of Jesus unless she had been his spouse. It's highly unlikely that Jesus would have been single and surrounded by males. It's far more likely that he would have been married. The rabbis were married. They were not celibate. They did not lead single lives. From its base by Lake Galilee, the Jesus movement began to grip the imagination of local people. Above all, Jesus became known as a healer and miracle worker. There were other such healers around, but Jesus was unusual because he also preached a message about the coming kingdom of God. People began to wonder who exactly Jesus was. In the Gospels, the moment of revelation comes with what is known as the salutation, when Jesus turns to Peter to ask him that question. Jesus said to him, who do people say that I am? And Peter said, well, some people say that you are John the Baptist, come back to life. And other people say you are the prophet Elijah. And then Jesus said to Peter, who do you think I am? And he said, I think you are the Messiah. And Jesus then accepted the role. But what exactly did Messiah mean? To Paul, it meant Jesus was the Son of God who'd come down to earth to die on the cross and promise eternal life for mankind. But the Jerusalem church, of which Peter was a leading member, would have had another interpretation. When Peter saluted Jesus as the Messiah, it didn't mean that you are a divine figure come from outer space to save the, uh, people's souls. He meant you are the king. When he called him the Messiah, that's what the meaning of Messiah was at that time. Messiah simply means the anointed one, and it's the title of every Jewish king who is descended from King David. The word Christ is simply the Greek translation of Messiah. Later on, of course, it too became a divine title, but at this time, the, the Greek title Christ or Christos simply meant the anointed one, and it was a royal title. And when Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, what he meant is, you are the king. I am giving you my allegiance as a subject, a loyal subject to you as my king. In the Jerusalem Church's alternative biography, Jesus becomes a man for whom religion embraced political action, a man whose mission was to free the Jewish people from oppression and usher in the kingdom of God here on earth. The central phrase of Jesus, the controlling theme of his teaching, is the kingdom of God. Kingdom itself is a civil term, it's a political term. It's a very deliberate choice. The kingdom of God means how would God run this world if God sat on Caesar's throne? The kingdom of God is, if you like, more than anything else, something which turns the world upside down, reverses the way that people expect things to behave. And Jesus' preaching is an awful lot about subverting things, changing the way that things are, a whole changing of the world order. Now Jesus prepared to leave Galilee and take his message to Jerusalem, the city where power lay. 
According to the Gospels, he was going as the Son of God to bring Jewish leaders back to the path of God. But in the alternative biography, his overriding purpose would have been very different. When Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, he was making his bid for the throne of the Jews. He was making a bid for power. Jerusalem, the probable year, 34 AD. As Jesus arrived, there was high tension. Half a million Jewish pilgrims had gathered for Passover, the festival which celebrated their liberation from the Egyptians. And the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, braced himself for trouble. In the Gospels, Pilate is a merciful man, a good Roman. But what was he really like? We do know a lot about Pontius Pilate, apart from the Gospels. We know about him from Philo, the Jewish philosopher, the first century, and Josephus, Jewish historian. And Pilate was fairly ruthless, especially with crowd control. So now Jesus is in Jerusalem. It's at Passover. Pilate would have had very hard, fast orders for this dangerous tinderbox situation. According to Jewish tradition, the Messiah was expected to arrive at Passover. So at that time, the guardians of law and order had to be extra vigilant. The Romans had abolished the Jewish kingship, the Jewish monarchy. Anyone who said, I am the Jewish king, was more or less proclaiming himself to be a rebel against the power of Rome. What is it they're yelling, King of the Jews? Hail to the King of the Jews. I want you, I want you. The Gospels of the New Testament record the events of the following days as a plot by Jewish leaders to execute Jesus. However, the alternative Jerusalem church biography would have pointed the finger of blame elsewhere. Instead of the Jews being the villains of the story, as they are in the Pauline Gospels, the Romans would be the villains of the story. Instead of having a Pilate who is so struck by the, the wonderful spirituality of Jesus that he's so reluctant to uh, execute him, we would have a Pilate who was more similar to the real Pilate, the historical Pilate, whom we know to have been a vicious and rapacious butcher. After his arrival in Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus upped the stakes. He entered the temple, the heart of the Jerusalem political and religious establishment, and drove the money changers and traders from its precincts. The Gospels assert that the attack on the temple was directed at the Jewish leaders who presided over it. The alternative biography would say that it was in fact an attack on the Romans, who were the temple's true controllers, while the Jewish priests were just their puppets. The temple, of course, was the house of God but it was also controlled by the Romans, who knew exactly that it was the center of, of Judaism. The high priest, for example, had to collaborate with the Romans. So it is a symbolic rejection of the temple, not because of any impurity with regard to itself or its own religion, but because of its association with Rome, because the temple is now the seat of collaboration, not the house of God. Reports of the trouble being caused by Jesus alerted the Roman authorities. Jesus had to be taken off the streets but first they had to find him. The New Testament says the disciple Judas betrayed Jesus. In the alternative biography, that betrayal would be seen as fiction. The idea that Jesus was betrayed by one of his closest disciples would actually have reflected on them personally because they were the disciples. The, the uh, leaders of the Jerusalem church were Jesus' disciples. Why did this story become part of the story of the Pauline Gospels? I think the reason is it was a mythological necessity. Every great legend has someone who functions in the role of the scapegoat, someone who betrays. Without betrayal, 
the great protagonist of the story does not become the martyred hero. Now, the natural person for this role was Judas, because his name, Judas, was the same as the name of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people had been cast for that role in the Gospel story as being the people who betrayed Jesus. Jesus was now under arrest. According to the New Testament, he was tried first by the Jewish priests for the blasphemy of calling himself the Son of God. He was then tried by the Romans for political subversion. The Gospels say it is the Jewish priests, not the Romans, who want rid of Jesus. They persuade an unwilling Pontius Pilate to execute him. But the Jewish punishment for blasphemy would have been stoning, whereas crucifixion was a purely Roman means of killing. In the alternative biography, Jesus' execution becomes a political Roman decision. The Romans crucified for anything that was subversive to the Roman order, the Roman law and order, as it were. So it was a highly symbolic public act of state terrorism. It was, in a way, like putting the head on Tower Bridge, except the whole body was, as it were, hung up there on a gibbet for everyone to see. Our Christ dies a revolutionary death in Palestine. The sleight of hand in the materials that we have change a Roman execution of Jesus into a Jewish plot. The New Testament's attempt to put the blame for Jesus' death on the Jews takes one final turn. Pilate makes a last offer to spare Jesus. Barabbas' first name was also Jesus. In the alternative biography, the Jewish mob's call to release him would be seen as pure invention. The story arose because there was a strongly attested tradition that when Jesus was arrested and in the custody of Pilate, the Jewish crowd shouted for his release, which they would naturally do because he would be a very popular figure, a messiah figure. And this tradition was so strong it couldn't be entirely expunged from the record, and it leads one to suspect that there has been some splitting here. In other words, that Jesus Barabbas and Jesus of Nazareth are really the same person historically. After his death, Jesus is placed in a stone tomb by a mysterious follower, Joseph of Arimathea. This later becomes the stage for the crucial moment in the whole story, Jesus' resurrection. But, in fact, crucifixion almost always meant there was no burial. The function of crucifixion is to leave the body there for the scavenging dogs or the crows. That was part of it. And it is significant that of the thousands of Jews who were crucified around Jerusalem in the first century, in all of this time we found only one crucified skeleton. And that's a graphic reminder that burial is the extraordinary event, not the usual event after crucifixion. According to the New Testament, an exception was made for Jesus. It was here that Jesus' followers arrived to anoint his dead body, only to discover the tomb was empty. Jesus had risen from the dead. For both Paul and the Jerusalem church, the resurrection was fundamental to their view of Jesus, but they understood it differently. To Paul, Jesus' death was the whole point of his life. Paul is not interested at all in the historical Jesus. For Paul, the history of Jesus begins with the night before his death and finishes three days later with his resurrection. And the real Jesus is totally ignored by Paul. And he says, all I want to know is Christ 
and Christ crucified, and consequently also risen. But for the Jerusalem church, Jesus' death on the cross had meant failure. The Messiah was supposed to usher in a new era of peace and prosperity here on earth. The Jerusalem church had a problem. Why did he die on the cross? In case of other Messiah figures, that was the end of their movement. If they were actually executed by the Romans, that was the end of their pretensions. The Jesus movement, however, continued because the belief arose among his followers that he was not dead, that he had been brought back to life by a process of resurrection, which was a miracle. The New Testament records that the disciple Peter, Jesus's brother James, and eventually all 12 disciples believed that they had encountered the risen Jesus. But in the alternative biography, how would they have viewed his resurrection? They didn't think this made him divine because no human being could be divine. That Judaism doesn't allow the worship of any human being as divine. That is an infringement of the first of the Ten Commandments. But they believed that he had been brought back to life and he would shortly come along and continue his mission, which was the same as before, that is to liberate the Jews and inaugurate what was called the kingdom of God. So the alternative Jerusalem church biography might have seen Jesus like this, a man born naturally into a Jewish family who observed Jewish law, a charismatic healer and preacher recognized by the disciple Peter as the Jewish Messiah bringing liberation on earth, a man who saw religion and politics as one, and a man who reappeared after his death to carry on the liberation fight. And this may be the lost biography the very first Christians were given. If you think of a lot of early Christians continuing to go to Jerusalem for festivals, they will have met with people like Peter and James and with other of the apostles that were still in Jerusalem, and they would have heard this story. So if you, if you like, it, was, it wasn't um, in any way a, a, a kind of marginal story, this one that's in Jerusalem. It was the one which was perhaps best known for the first generation or so of the Christian church. But as Paul's version began to catch on all over the Roman Empire, the role of the early leaders, in particular Jesus's brother James, began to be undermined. It's not just James, all the disciples. We find that all the disciples have a kind of uh, poor press in the Gospels. They're all very stupid. They don't understand what Jesus is talking about. And this, I think, I don't think they were stupid. I think they probably knew better what Jesus was talking about than anyone else, better than Paul. Of course, Christians believe it was the will of God that Paul's vision should become the basis for a new world religion. As for the successors to James and the Jerusalem church, by the second century, they'd evolved into a small Jewish sect called the Ebionites, which was viewed as heretical by the mainstream Christian church. But if they had won the battle for the biography of Jesus, there would be no such thing as Christianity. The Jerusalem version is a much less potent message than Paul's version because it's so closely tied to the historical Jesus, whereas Paul's mission uh, is based on the view that Jesus was the human form of, uh, of God. But the Pauline picture has dominated Christianity uh, for 2,000 years very effectively, as it's been enormously powerful and a great blessing. But at the same time, it is ironic that those who knew Jesus best and give us the most reliable picture of what he was like, in the end, their mission turns out to be treated as heresy. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. That's it for this week's documentary. If you want to relive it, 
You can watch it over on our YouTube channel, Timeline. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com, and you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review, too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. 